Welcome to the Your Own Medicine podcast. Thank you for listening. My name is Callie Klug and I am a yoga teacher and somatic practitioner in Southern California. A Your Own Medicine podcast was really created with this idea and this intention of bringing knowledge to you to access the medicine within you and within your own body. So thank you for listening. Let's go. Welcome to this week's episode. Um, This episode is freaking phenomenal. Um, I interviewed April Dawn Harder, who is a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and a trailblazer behind the first ever rehab center for narcissists. And um, this interview for me personally um, made so many so many fragmented separated experiences from lived experience of my own life from things that I've learned about somatics and psychology over the years um and just everything so many of those things came together and clicked for me in this interview and it was just incredible I've been thinking about it since since I interviewed April, it was just such a beautiful interview in the sense that she was able to hold so much nuance and just, I really, really appreciate this kind of capacity to hold nuance in these conversations about healing. And that's why I love somatics because somatics is all about dichotomy and nuance and different sensations that in theory oppose each other but are happening at the same time in the same body so it's so good um I invite you to approach this episode with curiosity and uh yeah let me know your thoughts on social media and um in the Q&A portion on Spotify as well enjoy All right. Welcome, April. Um, If you can start by just describing who you are, what it is you do, and then also your definition of narcissism. Hey, everybody. My name is April Don Harder. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I have very much reconceptualized narcissism as an addiction to activating endogenous opioids through enmeshment. Yeah. And I actually want to refer to that carousel that you sent me on Instagram because it was just so good about the traits of narcissism disorder. And I'm almost thinking we can take a moment to compare and contrast traditional narcissism, like narcissistic personality disorder, what's very well known and oversimplified in the media. And then your diagnostic criteria for narcissism disorder you know i i think that um and actually i'm going to go to that post myself so that i can kind of sort of be there with you perfect um so here's the deal right um i think it kind of helps to talk about in a way why i even got to this you know like why did i verge from the traditional 
you know, definition of narcissism. Why did I do that? I, to be clear, like I didn't, I had no plans of becoming a therapist that was going to innovate in this regard and to come up with new definitions and new criteria and stuff like that. I just thought to myself, you know, I'm going to be a feminist therapist. I'm going to help people who are oppressed. I'm going to help people because they usually don't get the help that they need. And that's what I'm going to focus on. And I'm going to focus on consciousness raising, right? That was my focus. So I just thought I'm going to take the information that's already available, you know, and help raise consciousness and, and kind of like get paid to fight the man. You know, that was, that was like my thing. Like, um, you know, when I was an undergrad and a graduate student in college and, um, yeah. And then, then of course, in trying to fight oppression in many ways, I had to understand the mind of the perpetrator because I wanted to understand how we can stop violence in the world. And it, you know what? I got a bit of a, almost like a foreshadowing actually in graduate school. I remember being at the Houston area women's center. That was one of my places where I did, you know, like my little graduate internship and I was co-facilitating like sexual assault groups, um, you know, survivor groups, domestic violence, wow. child molestation groups. And I was like co-facilitating. So I was learning how to like facilitate these things. Right. And I remember like waiting for the next group, right. The domestic violence group to come up. And my um, preceptor said, Hey, just take the time. We've got some time. Check out some of these articles on my bookshelf and just read those and let me know like what you learn. And I was browsing through them. and said, well, I already know this and I already know this and I already know this. And I was like, that's kind of boring. <laughs> and then I came across this one article and I don't even remember the title of it, but it was about the prevention of, um, teaching feminism to prevent violence. And I was teaching feminism to perpetrators. And I thought, whoa, like that's, and there were all these studies that said, if you teach uh, feminism to the perpetrators, it, it helps prevent that violence and that it works really effectively. And I thought, well, that's great, you know? Yeah. So that kind of piqued my interest, the thought of working with perpetrators. And I remember after reading that article, she said, okay, she said, April, what did you learn? I said, well, you know what? I learned that like the way to prevent violence in the world is to work with the perpetrators. And she said, oh no, perpetrators don't change. They're just the way that they are. You need to stay away from them. They're toxic. Like oh. da -da. So in many ways, that was kind of like my, my, my foreshadowing of dealing with narcissism. But little did I know I'd start looking at my own inner perpetrator later. <laughs> Okay, so hold on, oh. one hold on one second. You may have to edit this out because I'm yeah, take to, your time. I um forgot to to get my uh, adapter cord here. I'm sorry about that. I kind of love that she said that to you. Like, yeah, that you... was. I remember being so pissed. Actually, yeah, like, what was your response? Were you... I was offended. I was pissed because she just kind of shut me down like really quickly. She she wasn't really open to conversation and curiosity. It was just. She just had this belief so strongly ingrained into her uh, and really, you know, looking, you know, that's how I felt back then. Now yeah. I look at it and go, she was projecting, she was reenacting, you know, like she was just very upset and didn't want to like even entertain that thought. So I had more, I had more of an open mind and curiosity and I was more focused on the results and not necessarily how it was done. So I was open to okay. whatever to prevent violence and to stop oppression. I, I was open to whatever. 
And she was, she had already said, well, I already made up my mind, you know, perpetrators can't change. Don't work with, why would you work with them? You just have to acknowledge the humanity in perpetrators. And I think that's something that people like makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and yeah. And so I, I thought, wow, that would be cool. Um, but that she shut that down really quick. And then I just sort of didn't think of it for many, many years. And then I ended up, you know, ultimately, so then I, you know, I worked with codependence. I considered myself a codependence expert for a while, but really I wasn't. And now looking at my own, no, I wasn't good because I hadn't even dealt with my own narcissism yet. So that's a whole other can of worms, right? So that we're, you know, I thought I was good with codependency, but I really wasn't. I would have people, you know, so I thought at the time that, that being really good at supporting the victims of violence, right? The victims of abuse was to sit there, have them vent, me validate, totally relate to them. And then they feel safe because I get them. And I thought that was healing. I thought that was like the way, but I never addressed the ways they harmed themselves. I didn't address self-sabotage. I didn't even address my own self-sabotage. So I really wasn't looking in the mirror. It was just like, um, it was just let's take the whole time to vent about perpetrators and how horrible they are. Let's Mm -hmm. look for all the, like, but let's not look in the mirror. Let's not look fully inward and let's not hold ourselves accountable because actually the only person needs to be accountable is the perpetrator. So that was always the focus. The, The whole energy was like, they're bad. I'm good. I don't need to change, but they do. And that was the whole thing. Like black and white, very binary very black and white right no very little introspection and there was because also there was so much pressure to also stay within those confines of thinking Mm. remember from the beginning you know like because there was a part of me that wanted to fit in I was like I better not go against the status quo because I'm not gonna how am I gonna make a living how am I gonna you know it was like I wasn't really being authentic at the time oh my gosh so I was scared because I I was so passionate about you know advocacy right that out at the same time i was being as i call now very narcissistic right i was i was very enmeshed with the um the culture of social justice and advocacy to the point where it was like i i was afraid of the loss of that relationship it's almost like a cult dynamic like you don't dare speak out i mean you did with your with your supervisor or whoever it was and she said explicitly, we don't do that. And then I definitely fawned back there. Actually, okay. First response I had was definitely like passive aggressive, angry. I reenacted uh, and she reenacted too. So it's total reenact. Like I look at it now and it's like so mm-hmm. different compared to when I was younger and before I had therapy myself. And so it was it, looking at that. It's like, ooh, you know, we both reenacted. But anyway, so then fast forward, I started working later with... Um, believe it or not, racist. And that was something that was very shocking to people too. He said, April, why do you want to work with white people? Why do you want to work with racists? And I, again, there was this thing in me that was, it was like, well, if they learn, they'll stop being violent if they learn. But then here's where I ended up switching into, um, this is when it started to kind of switch up a little bit mm-hmm. because I started working with these white people and um within the anti-racism scene when i used to be a part of that like heavy anti-racism scene 
what on Instagram, especially that's how I got my break originally. And what happened was, was that it was kind of like, I started to notice, right. The abuse against white people mm. within these circles and it, and the white people basically started fawning. They started fawning and going, um, well, if I'm a good white person, I'm just going to shut down and let people abuse me. Right. So it was like, and as a black woman at that time, before I started to realize that there was abuse going down, I also myself was very much, there was a part of me that was compassionate for white people. Another part of me said they deserve whatever's coming, you know, like basically in the sense I totally enabled and was complicit to justifying harm against them. And because in my mind, the way I was taught and, and very much in a big way was again, back to very similar vein to what I said before, yeah. uh, I'm the good person. They're the bad person. Again, as you said, lack of humanity. So it was like, if they're a perpetrator, we don't need to be humanistic to them. We don't need to care for them at whatsoever because that's not our job. Right. So there was a part of me that thought that, but then that, that was different than actually my ethics and values as a social worker. Because, said, people, uh-huh. Sorry to interrupt. You said something on Luis's podcast that is coming forward for me right now, as you say this, it was something like a justification to treat someone with a lack of humanity because like their, their actions warrant basically the same thing back. It's that's the justification for this. Yeah. That's cycle. Right. right. So I, I, it would, it's a delusional thought. It's a delusional thought that thought. That's what I teach people in the work that I do now. The justification of harming people because they perpetrated is actually delusional thinking. There's, it, there's a difference between self-defense versus I'm just going to go and now harm people preemptively. There's, there's a difference, right? Mm-hmm. But at that time, I couldn't tell the difference because I hadn't done enough of my own work. I didn't look enough in the mirror because I didn't feel that I needed to because I, I am, I've been oppressed, this and that. I didn't have to fully look at my own inner perpetrator. But in working with white people, I did have to look at my own inner perpetrator. I did have to start going, I'm really angry with these people. Mm. Just like the racism I've been through, like I hadn't healed from the racial trauma, not enough to where I could see clearly and discern like what's happening. So it's what, okay. did your, what did your work look like with them? Ooh, um, basically, yeah, just a lot of consciousness raising. You know, I definitely, uh, with them, <laughs> they were so funny. <laughs> funny, were these, but like I, groups? They were funny. <laughs> Right. So I ran, so I, so I ran coaching groups, right. I called it anti-racism coaching. Right. And they basically were upset with me because I wasn't abusing them. Okay. That's actually fully expected to be abused. Did they, they they want to be like, did they feel like given the, the climate that was created surrounding that topic, did they feel like it would pay their penance? Yeah. Yeah. They, they felt like that's crazy. <laughs> so I'm trying to teach them, right? I'm trying to teach them. Um, and, and predominantly white women, although there were folks okay. that, that, that also I, a few that identified as non-binary, et cetera. Right. And 
so I had a mostly predominantly white women, right? And this is what, back in 2019, 2020, like 20, well, a little bit 2018, 2019, 2020, around there, right? Okay. And basically, they thought that I must be teaching something wrong because I'm not abusing them, but they don't realize they want to be abused. And yes, they think that they thought that me abusing them was boundaries. So when I was not abusive to them, they thought that as a black woman that I couldn't be trusted because I must not understand how dangerous they are. So they were like, but other black people, other people are so angry at us. And they're so, I'm like, so I'm here to teach you how to love yourself. They're like, but I don't deserve to love myself because I'm such a racist. That's wrong. Why is, isn't that centering myself? I'm like, but actually you do need to actually work on yourself so that you stop the cycle of violence towards others because you're violent to yourself and then you turn around and get violent to other people. So this was very much a prototype to the work that I do now. I just didn't realize it. I thought I was going to stay um, in anti-racism work for a long. I didn't even, I didn't even realize, oh no, this is like pre-NARC work. So I started to notice that, that racism is so much more than just the Klan. I started seeing like, I started to realize this is a mental health issue. <laughs> I had people that would DM me years ago. They would say, I just got out of inpatient psych because I tried to kill myself because um, I was jumped on by so many people because I accidentally said something racist online and I didn't understand it in the comments section and I wanted to die because everyone jumped me. It's all this shame. So these people were coming to me with a ton of shame for the racist behaviors that they had done. And then they wanted me to punish them. And I was like, that's not what I do. You see? Yeah. See what I mean? So back to the beginning, right? I said, so there is this thing of if you perpetrator, you need to be punished. And that's the way that you make it up. That's how we rectify the world. Correct. Instead of rehabilitating the quote criminal, rehabilitating them, you just want to go and hang them. Like that, that's actually the dichotomy we're talking about here. So I'm more from the rehabilitative side, right? Versus um, I'm going to just punish you. And that's the way you're going to change. And it's like, what I noticed was that when these people made mistakes and they did very bad things, and then they went, they, they wanted to be shamed too. And I wouldn't shame them. Hmm. And at the time, it's almost like, I would, kinky. like, it's almost like kinky, like BDSM, where they're like, coming to you like, like strap me up and whip me. Cause that's what mm -hmm. I deserve. <laughs> and that in and of itself was enmeshed. Right. So, so <laughs> right. You're right. So that was it, this them. is just like, maybe, it's, it's just clicking. Everything's clicking. Yeah, it's clicking. So this is all prototype of the work I do now. So I didn't understand they, they were actually addicted to POC for a lack of what better words, beating their ass about their racist behavior. So they were actually unconsciously getting off to getting abused and basically they were reenacting probably childhood stuff where they were i have to now prove to my parents that i'm worthy by accepting by fawning by accepting so we oh. had a lot of fawners a lot of fawners mm. um and when i wouldn't 
enable that fawning, they said, but that's what we paid for. We want you to get us in check and get us in line. And and I just had a very loving, gentle, compassionate approach. And they were confused by that. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, it was, I mean, you would think people would, would appreciate that, but no, they were like, yeah. So that, that, that was the work that I used to do. And then I started to, then I started to see basically the corruption within social justice. And I started to see aggressive, passive aggressive behaviors and go and, and really even again, look at my own passive aggressive behavior. And so I started to realize that that's something I don't want to do. And that's something I can't enable but I had to hit rock bottom. And so as an influencer, I as actually, yes, back in what, 20, yeah, in like 2020 or so, or 2019, no, 2019, I ended up, there was an African-American woman who plagiarized my work. And I absolutely, completely reenacted. And I started trying to take revenge and like shame her publicly. And it went like back and forth. It was horrible. It was very narcissistic, very horrible. And so when that happened, I lost a ton of followers. And then I started, and then I had a complete breakdown crying on Instagram. Just breakdown, totally breakdown, broken down. And then I realized, oh my God, I need to get help. It's like any, any addict, it's like, oh my God, I've hit rock bottom. I need to go get help. And that's when I went to therapy. Well, that's when I went to therapy. And after I went to therapy, I noticed in therapy that there were aspects of the therapy that wasn't really helping me. So <laughs> I got EMDR, but it was parts of it. And I'm like, well, why do I keep doing this? Why? Like, <laughs> why do I have this? compulsion to keep doing certain things so in trying to understand myself i go well i'm a i identify as a codependent and i go i keep on getting ensnared with narcissists i keep on falling for stuff why does this keep i can't stop i'm going to therapy it still won't stop so i started to go i sat down i started looking at the definition of codependency again and then i really started going back into narcissism, the de definition. I started looking at them both. And at the time too, I, I I would say that racists were narcissists, right? But then I started noticing even the rate. I'm like, it isn't as simple as you're self-centered, you're this, you're that. It's so much more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. so, so violence can be so much more nuanced because violence can be towards ourselves or to others. So I started looking at both the definitions and I sat down and I, I go, hmm, they have the same childhood background they are actually acting very similarly. I don't know what the difference is between them, actually. They're really, I'm, I'm being very open about it. I'm like, wait a minute, why is there this belief that there's something different between the codependent and the narcissist? And then I had to do some CEUs and I had never done CEUs as a social worker on addiction. Because mm. I was like, I don't want to work with addicts. Oh no. I didn't even in denial of my own addiction, of course. And like, you know, <laughs> I told myself, I don't want to work with addicts because they'll never change. <laughs> oh my gosh. The cycle. Uh-huh. So I had all these preconceived, you know, again, notions, whatnot, right? Narcissistic. Wow. And then I, so anyway, I learned about addiction and then I was like, oh my God, 
Racism is addiction. All this stuff is addiction. Codependency is addiction. And of course with codependency, they do tell you an addict, but they say you're an addict to the narcissist. No, no, no. It's more than that. It's more than that. And that creates that victim, perpetrator, binary context again. So then after that, um, I started to go, there's something happening underneath the surface. What is the root of this? That's why I was like, I could sit here all day and describe things about symptoms, right? But what is really happening underneath the surface? And that's why I ended up getting, I had to teach myself um, a lot of anatomy and physiology and neurobiology. I had to teach myself this online. And after scouring the internet, like with clinical research papers, I was like looking for addiction and these symptoms. And I came across the brain opioid theory of social attachment. And that theory is what helped me really understand that we're dealing with an addiction. And that's why I feel very confident when I say an addiction to activating endogenous opioids. But my twist to that added is that it's enmeshment. Because what I'm seeing there is pure enmeshment. Even the way I define enmeshment is very different because um, the way that enmeshment originally is, is with family systems. It's with family systems therapy, family therapy, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's when people think of enmeshment, they just think, oh, well, you don't know, you're blended. There's like no separation between you and me. And that's what people know about enmeshment, but it's more than that. So bottom line, I started really looking at the root of all of this. And I had no idea that when trauma happens, I mean, even though, you know, uh, Besser van der Kolk, you know, he actually, he actually wrote a clinical piece years ago stating that Vietnam veterans, when they saw, let's say a movie or something like that, and they were, and it triggered them. It was like, I can't remember how many milligrams, but so many, they measured it. So many equivalent of so many milligrams of morphine were getting shot in the body, basically from within. When they were feeling triggered and activated. Correct. Correct. And so mm. you see, so there's a, so the reason my whole thing, as I had to explain, my whole thing is I started to trust in neuroscience and biology over what's popular or what everyone thinks something is. And I started to go, okay, but what is really happening? And that's mm -hmm. why I'm really comfortable and confident with the work that I do now. Cause I'm like, I know the science, I know what's going on in the body. And I'm like, this is what's happening. So, um, anytime you, very brave. Stuff, anytime you read stuff about narcissism or codependency, if you ask people, okay, but what is the mechanism that's causing this? Well, trauma. Okay. But, but what, what causes the compulsion? Why can't the compulsion stop? Because it's an addiction. So narcissism and codependency are both addictions. And I see it all as narcissism because like I said on another post, um, I, I kept the word narcissism. So yeah, that, that's one of my questions for you is- um, word, right? Go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my question, because I was having questions just pop in my head all week long. So I was thinking about this um, chat with you. And my one of my questions was, I'm just going to read it as I wrote it. If it's a relatively new concept, like this definition of narcissism, why why not make up or use a new word? Why use a word with so much stigma and negative connotation? Yes. And trust me, trust and believe me when I say, I, I wish I could come up with a new word. I feel so much, my life would be so much easier. Yeah. 
but the word is so perfect um the word is so perfect um the root word of nar narcissism is actually narc which is to numb and it is literally what is happening in the body because of the opioids because of the opioids that's where we get the word narcotic so like it's interesting because actually the word narcissism was actually used basically inappropriately from the start because we didn't understand neuroscience at the time so when freud and what about narcissus though isn't there that whole story about um yes because, right so so the thing is is that with the history of the word narcissism um yeah they they use narcissus and 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 the whole story with that with echo echo is basically the equivalent of the codependent like like this is this whole myth right but this is oh my god this gets into a whole can of worms because um when freud and others especially freud freud was actually um a cocaine addict okay that tracks that's a whole other can of words that's what I'm like when he um, when him and so many other people came up with this the only thing they saw was self-centeredness but they couldn't but freud himself was no specialist in addiction he even said himself, he said, if we could ever prove that, that narcissism has some, he said, I cannot make this up. He wrote a, he wrote an article called on narcissism. And he said, if we, he said in it, I just read it like last year at like thoroughly. And he said, if we could ever prove that narcissism is caused by, what did he say? Like, um, um, I, I don't remember the words he used, but basically he said by essentially biologically, if we could prove it, he basically said, if we could bio biologically prove why narcissism exists, then everything I'm saying is completely wrong. Um, <laughs> so, basically, so basically the reason why people continue to believe narcissism is just the way it is, is because nobody wants to look at the biology of it. The, well, as far as it goes is you were abused as a child and that's it. I think that it's definitely that. And then I think in the last X amount of years, it's evolved a new meaning. I was actually just listening to um, Luis's podcast episode on like pop psychology words. And one of them was like narcissist. And someone on the podcast said, my nephew is using this word about his teacher, like calling her a narcissist. So I feel like it's just even further evolved into this really casually used term. Yeah. It's like saying you're a bad person. You're a sinner. You're a bad person. Yeah. This and, and that's why it's so stigmatizing. Right. So totally. That's yeah. That's, that's the, the story. I mean, I, I in as short as I can say it, cause it's extensive, but basically I eventually started to realize that, um, we are, I started to realize that the way that we activate that numbing. So it's a compulsive numbing narcissism. It's ism. It's a compulsive numbing, activation of numbing. How do we do this? Through either violating other people's boundaries or failing mm -hmm. to enforce our own boundaries, right? So the classic codependent looks like someone who fails to enforce their own boundaries. And the classic traditional narcissist is someone who violates other people's boundaries. However, um, mm -hmm. the, the codependent, the way that they violate people's boundaries is so much more subtle and covert. And that's why it doesn't appear so, so quote narcissistic right so yeah. basically codependents are in denial of their own perpetration and so that's another reason why i kept the word because 
actually they're <laughs> codependents are being very narcissistic. They're one uh, in the same. They're one in the same. So I'm seeing the biology matches the word etymologically and literally from what I've researched, right? It's the perfect thing. And I'm not seeing any difference between the behaviors because if you're looking at just as an addiction to activating endogenous opioids, there's different strategies for doing that. Different strategies. And so some are more socially acceptable yes. than others. Correct. So codependency is so much more so socially acceptable. In other words, manipulation, which absolutely is abusive as hell. Um, absolutely in my practice, like I'm treating my patients and, you know, they are absolutely, um, their parents, for example, their mothers, totally manipulative on the outside. They look so perfect. They would never fit the like profile of a traditional narcissist in that sense. Mm -hmm. Right. But yet the damage is being done to my patient, right? Like it's the same. So we even downplay manipulation, like playing with people's emotions, like we downplay that. Um, and it, so, yeah. So I have patients that totally fit the profile of traditional narcissist and fit the profile of a codependent. And that's, I guess you could say part number three. If, if it isn't what it is, then why am I able to treat both? And I treat them the same way as an addiction. Okay. So that's the other thing I feel confident about is like, well, if I'm treating the traditional narcissist as well in my practice and they're getting better and I'm treating it because I'm framing it as an addiction and they're getting better, that's good. That proves that it is an addiction. And then they're stopping the compulsion to harm others. Because they're not as in the cycle of feeling like they need to violate others' boundaries. Because they are detoxing. <clears throat> so they're and detoxing um so they are so detoxing in my work is you know detoxing from maladaptive schemas which is essentially um the rationale and justification for the urge to either violate someone's boundaries or to fail to enforce our own boundaries okay that's the foundation and i do that through emdr okay and I do that through EMDR and a lot of people are like, well, April, can I just like, just go to EMDR? I'm good. No, because it's a little bit more complicated than that. My colleagues, like what we're taught in EMDR is we have to do something called case formulation. It basically means we're like strategizing how we're going to apply that EMDR. But the way that I do it is within that theoretical framework that I've created. So I do case formulation in, in a, in such a way where I use EMDR to treat someone with my theoretical framework. So that that's why it's effective. If all you do is use the EMDR to address any trauma or trauma, it's not going to stop the compulsion that, and it comes back to my own treatment that I have with that therapist. Like she could not stop my, my narcissism. I was like, I kind of feel less triggered, but I can't stop this compulsion. And I didn't know how to name it at the time. So that's the thing. If you go get EMDR, so for those listening, you're like, oh, I'll just get EMDR, I'm good to go. It's like, yeah, I've had so many people online say, I'll oh, just get EMDR, I'm good. And then that's it. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a little more complicated than that because so you actually have to target the, the, you have to target the memory connected to the source of enmeshment. Okay. Well, that answers my question. I was going to ask 
well, what about just focusing on healing anxious attachment? So anxious attachment is, um, so then we get into secure and insecure attachment. I also see that a little differently. I see all insecure attachment as narcissism and secure attachment as not being narcissistic. So, and that's definitely not the mainstream. And people even say online, oh, I've got an anxious attachment style. I'm like, oh no, you're just being narcissistic. <laughs> so I really want to tie this back into fawning yeah. because I, I'll just preface it. Oh yeah, because that's fawning anxious attachment. <laughs> Girl, <laughs> I've been freaking out reading your post. I'm like, this is me. And yes. I created a post a few weeks ago and the title was, I'm a master manipulator. I know exactly what to say to get you to like me. And then I wrote this whole post about fawning because that's what it is, is saying, <laughs> I know exactly what to say, what to wear, what, when to laugh, how to not laugh too much to yeah. make you not hate me. Right. That's why I love that clip you did with the fairy. It's like master fawning little fairy wings. I love that on Instagram, your post. On yeah, thank you. I'm and like, it's so perfect. Yeah. This is everyone who follows me. Yeah. Can yeah. relate to this work. And I will say too, the language, I I hear you that you use the word narcissist. It's a little, it's a little scary yeah. because um, one of your posts, it says, as a child of narcissistic parents, you became a narcissist. The denial of this truth is real and hard to accept. And then I wrote something during this week that basically says, like, when when we are healing from healing, in quotes, because it's the kind of healing structure that you described at the beginning, where we are saying, okay, our parents were the perpetrators, we were the victims of this. What I've noticed in myself and in a lot of groups that I'm in is that we want to distance ourselves. Like that is not me. I don't want to be like that. I'm not that. And in, in relationships, every ex is a narcissist, but I'm not. That's right. And it just creates this huge separation of like, and dissociation from our own parts that are narcissistic. And I'm just curious if you can talk on that on like, I mean, you kind of already did at the beginning too, with, with like this black and white binary thinking. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. I, I, I feel like I love this question. I feel like you're really penetrating deeply uh, in, in asking this question. So I just, that's very entertaining for me. Just as an aside, I'm like, I love these kind of questions. Okay, good. Yay. Because it's going to get really juicy. It's going to get into um, aspects of, um, I think you want to get a sense of what examples of my patients where they reenact and why they do that. Because that that that's what I think a lot of people listening are going to be like, oh yeah, I can identify with that. Because um, with anxious attachment, let's start with this. With anxious attachment, it is a response to having a parent that is abusive as hell because you learn early on that if I were to fight, I'm going to get punished more. That's what fawning is all about. Mm -hmm. Fawning is I've learned and I've been conditioned that if I fight back or if I disagree in any kind of way and I don't fall in line, I'm going to get it worse. 
That's what that is. So, but it also teaches us when we're fawning, it teaches us to be manipulative because then that's like saying, oh, well, now I can predict and know what I know what they want. Now they want me to submit. So if I submit, then I can get what I want, right? So we learn that early on because the parent is being manipulative to the child mm -hmm. by intimidating. So fawners have been intimidated from the time they were very little intimidated. And then we're going back now to the the groups that you taught on anti-racism. And though that group of people who had that dynamic with their parents coming there and saying, please, April, punish me. This is yes. how we make it right. Got it. You got it. I'm beautiful, beautiful connection. Um, correct. So they they came in reenacting as if, and wanted me to be their abusive parent because they learned in their mind that the only way to be good is to take abuse. Okay. The only way to be good is to be compliant. The only way to be a good person. Otherwise you're bad. You're a bad person. So that's the reason why Wow. You're looking, you go, I don't want to identify with that because I'm bad. I don't want to look at bad. And guess what that's connected to? Perfectionism. That is perfectionism. And that is also about letting go of control because. <clears throat> Wait, can you say that again? Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Perfectionism. Because perfectionism is supposed to be pure, clean, no mistakes. Hmm. So fawners don't want to make mistakes. Fawners want to appear like they're not making any mistakes. So they become little perfectionists. And that's because they harbor a lot of shame. Okay. And that shame is internalized from their parents telling them, if you don't submit, you should be ashamed of yourself. And then I'm going to intimidate you to like do what you're told. So you learn early. This is the way to be safe. The way to be safe is to be good the fairy i'm gonna be a good person i'm gonna submit i'm gonna do what i'm told otherwise i'm bad right so everything about let's not look bad let's do everything not to look bad so mm -hmm. then when you start looking at your own narcissism that's terrifying because then Scary. it's terrifying because it's like wait a minute i'm looking at what's bad but i'm not supposed to be bad i'm supposed to be compliant submissive like do what i'm told <clears throat> But then when you start looking at, at correct, with the ways that you yourself, right, that we can be manipulative, then we start to see the darker side of ourselves, right? And we do this to survive from childhood. So all mm -hmm. that's about is I'm going to fawn to survive in this very toxic, narcissistic situation because parents who intimidate like that violate boundaries. So then I'm now going to manipulate you and just because it has to do with lessening the degree of lessening the degree of psychological damage that's been done. Because then if you can submit, you mm, might be able yeah. to survive the fight. Okay. And, and and then you get conditioned into that. And those are the schemas. Those are maladaptive schemas. Those are the negative self-talk. These are the, the the conditioning that we learn. We have to reverse the conditioning. So I use EMBR to reverse the conditioning. Once you can reverse the conditioning, you stop the cycle of enmeshment because what drives it all are all of these things that we learned as a kid. If I do this, this happens. If I do this, this happens. When we actually reverse that, basically deprogram from 
you could say you i think we had talked about cults and stuff before because if you if you can reverse the programming then you let go of manipulation you let go of that you let go you let go of control you let go and go because the it's delusional to even think you control can control others that's a delusion Mm-hmm. so whenever so what i'm trying to say here back to what you're saying about why is it so hard to look at, at that narcissism because the definition doesn't match if you start looking at this definition you, you can be more open to it but mm-hmm. also because um because when we look at when we look at that word narcissism it's so stigmatizing so shameful totally but it but it but that's because we're rejecting that wounded part of us that needs to heal, which is that darker side. That is that shadow work, right? So this is also another way to look at it as a shadow work, right? We're doing, we're really looking at our shadow. So it's like saying that that shadow part of us is not like we need to reject that. We need to let that go. But in reality, that's a part of us. That's a very important part of us, right? And that shouldn't be rejected. And the shadow just means the unconscious. It just means the part of us that we don't understand. So that's so important in understanding who we are and our identity. Because if we don't understand, because trauma will, and that's a whole can of worms, and that's like in a podcast episode I did the other day, which is boundaries are about really about expressing our identity expressing our definition not about because you're either going to do boundaries based on safety i'm going to set a boundary to to be safe i'm like no boundary is i am i am maintaining my integrity i'm maintaining who i truly am this doesn't align with me this does that's what a boundary is not based on a certain safety situation. Now I'm going to learn how to protect myself and set boundaries. That's not what a boundary is. A boundary is very unique to us. And basically, and this is taboo as well, but I'll say it. Nobody, in my opinion, nobody can teach anybody to set boundaries. Yeah, um, I saw that on one of your posts. I'm very boundaries are unique to us. So only we can define ourselves Yes, we can have people to help us heal for sure, help support us to do that healing, but boundaries are actually organic. They are organic and they come from, from a healed heart. Not, not, you don't reverse your, people, folks do not want to detox because the truth is, is that we as people do not want to let go of our attachment needs. Anxious attachment is I'm going to fawn, right? Unconsciously, autonomic nervous system. I'm going to fawn because that's what I learned to do to be safe. But it also means this is how I get my needs met from my, from my parents. I have to submit to eat. I have to submit to do these things just to survive. And we've got to like reverse that, like, the manipulation part is with fawning is the whole concept of what happens if you stop fawning. That means you're going to have to survive without trying to manipulate everybody around you. It means you actually have to be authentic 
And you very well may lose some of the things that you need to survive with in certain ways, but you have, you also, you could get that without fawning. Mm. So that's the thing you have to let go. I'm sure you can understand this. There, mm -hmm. when you reverse fawning, there are things you're just not going to get to partake in right anymore. Right. Yeah, because totally. benefit. That's detox. Detox is you're not going to have those things that you want. If you stop fawning, it's very hard for people to stop fawning because then if they stop fawning, they're going to stop getting some of the thing, some of their attachment needs. And they don't consent to that. And you have to consent to that. You can't be forced. To stop fawning? To stop, to let go of attachment needs. So you have to consent to go, I'm not going to get this attachment need met. And attachment needs are mm -hmm. the needs that we get from our relationships. So it means if I stop fawning, I may not get affection. If I stop fawning, I may not get money from my boyfriend. See, then you're not going to get what you want. You're not going to, you're going to have to accept that you're not going to get that. If you were to remain in your own integrity and be honest to yourself about like, actually, I don't like this and I really don't, you know, then you got to maintain, you got to let go of being manipulative. Yeah. I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I started working with Kali and that she destroyed my life and what happened was that I started experiencing loss and it made me like grief is very energy consuming and I didn't have the energy to fawn mm. and it wasn't like a choice yeah it was like stripped from me really and yeah. everything you're describing it you just relationships fall away it's just how it goes when you've structured your entire life around in your words like getting these needs met super unconsciously but then you start to just not have the energy or not manipulate as much it just things shift structures change and it it's fucking painful and I think that's why your work is very, uh, I think there's a few reasons why your work is very intimidating. One is just because it invites you to acknowledge your parts that are quote unlovable. And then it also invites you to release structures that you've taken years to build. And it's heartbreaking to do that and that's what i think you call detox yeah yeah i call detox yeah because yeah because you're it's detox because you're um you're reversing there's three i call it three components to detox the foundation is letting go of those um of the rational and justification for for why you do what you do right for example fawning so i'll focus on the fawning, mm -hmm. right like yeah. rationale for why you fawn what makes it acceptable to fawn well i did that because i need to get this yeah but you gotta let that go right mm -hmm. when you start to let that go you stop then for example with fawning you're going to self-sabotage and you're going to fail to enforce boundaries but when you start changing the rational justification you also start to really under you, you'd also develop intimacy within yourself 
you get to understand yourself more, what you consent to, what you do not consent to, what you agree with, what you don't agree with. And that is actually what eventually makes it safer to let go of getting your attachment needs is because you feel safe in your own integrity and it's okay to let those things go because those things don't define you. You define yourself. Because before so much of yourself is going to be wrapped up and defined in those things outside of yourself. And you're, you can't imagine a life without those things. But then really with that, with that loss, right? Yeah. You're now, when everything else falls apart around you, you're faced to go within like the new moon. You have to go within, right? And so, yes, this work, you have to go deep within a lot of my patients, like what they've told me is that they've done like all kinds of things like ayahuasca and that the work we do together is even more potent than ayahuasca. It's like, it's mm-hmm. to, to give, because I'm sure a lot of your listeners may have done ayahuasca perhaps, or, or if they're similar in my vein, because a, a lot of people who like my work, they like the idea of ego death, right? So this work is also basically ego death. So there's a lot of way to call it, right? I clinically I call it detox. It's also ego death, shadow work. Like there's a lot of ways to kind of look at it. I just have a particular framework for getting into it very clinically, just a different kind of a framework. But um, but yeah, you have the loss of those schemas, the rational justification for why you're doing what you're doing, which then builds up who you truly are. And then it makes it safe to let those things go. But you're going to have a lot of withdrawal symptoms. You would have experienced a ton of withdrawal symptoms. And that's what anxiety oh, yeah, is. I know. <laughs> it's, that's, that's... it's like literally like feels like what I imagine withdrawal. I mean, I've withdrawn from sugar before and it's like the, the deep cravings. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And, and the craving, by the way, is the craving for the attachment need. And that's normal to want attachment needs. It's just that there's a moral way to go about doing it, an immoral way to go about doing it. That's also taboo within my field. Well, you can't tell people what's moral and immoral. I'm like, oh, yes, I will. Absolutely, I will. And I'll say, if it's harming you or somebody else, it's immoral. And but if it's... and no if it's one, mm-hmm. Nobody cares about harming yourself, though. Correct. That's okay. It's okay to harm okay. yourself. Yes. In fawning, you just can't be a traditional narcissist and harm other people and harm other people Mm -hmm. well i tell you why that is because it looks bad it's about reputation too because it looks bad and we don't do that right so if you do it secretly to yourself and harm yourself it doesn't look bad unless it gets out and then you're a martyr so it actually adds to your image even more yeah yeah it makes you even more more heroic yes (laughs) i have a point that i wrote down that i'd love to get to and this is like what I've seen and as I've done my own detox led by Kali Ma um is that this is extremely pervasive and by that I mean there's no part of your life that is safe from this addiction to enmeshed relationships and I've seen this in the practitioner space I had some mentors who I thought with my background, I'm like, oh my God, they're so amazing. Everyone loves them. They're chameleoning every, mm-hmm. with every person. They were making lots of money. And mm-hmm. 
in hindsight, I was like, something about it felt a little icky and a little culty. And it wasn't until manipulative, something in you knew there was manipulation, manipulation. It wasn't until honestly, very recently, probably in the last six months or so that I've looked back on it and said, there was so much, um, the practitioners holding space were fawning and it actually created a really gross feeling structure of enmeshment. Of, of the people working with them thinking, oh my God, we're so close, mm. but they weren't so close mm. and it creates confusion and it creates a culty feeling and it's just very icky. And I feel like this addiction, like you say, it, it, it's all pervasive. Like you can't not do this in your work and do it in your personal relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's all personal because because it comes back to childhood traumas because you're going to be reenacting these traumas like and when you reenact, you're dissociating. Oh, and that's the other thing I want to tell you but, but Oh, yeah, please. Very important about dissociation. <clears throat> dissociation is not talked about enough uh publicly. Um dissociation also there are the theory about dissociation is that there are a lot of there are a lot of theories about what causes dissociation um i what i believe is that yes dissociation is also caused by that endogenous opioid release we basically get high so when we fawn we're high and it's and that's what's a high it's a high and and so we're you know whether it's super big time violence we're dissociating and getting we're one would think well how do we how do we um get high off of violence right because because adrenaline actually activates endogenous opioids and then it's funny too because like people think oh oxytocin is a love hormone i'm like oxytocin is the endogenous opioid chaser oxytocin what it does is that it actually it's like what it does is enhances the euphoria of the endogenous opioid release. That's why it feels extra because it's actually enhanced the chaser. It enhances. People always think that oxytocin is the love. I'm like, no, it's endogenous opioids. That's what gets activated in social bonding. So that's another thing everyone needs to remember is that like, or know about my work is that the reason also it's very confusing is because mm-hmm. we, we lack discernment because so because endogenous opioids get activated through pain but also through pleasure so when you talk about kink and all that that's actually kind of true because uh kink is kink and it feels great because the pain releases and activates endogenous opioids which causes euphoria that's why with cults you have euphoria oh my god the cult leader like oh we just love this person you know and you know and all this right because the peep followers are experiencing euphoria um. because they're getting high because you get high through social bonding and through psychological pain so what happens when you're a kid is that you literally you're the target of enmeshment which is a boundary violation from parents and you're getting unconsciously high off of it and you dissociate so when we dissociate our it's really messed up our our memory 
our, our, our memory cells are literally getting flooded with numbing agent. And what it's doing is it's causing a distortion of reality. That's why we have depersonalization, derealization, and dissociative amnesia. We have like this distorted. So in our narcissism, our maladaptive schemas are, guess what? Our delusional thinking. And how do we get it? Because we were high. We, In other words, the trauma we went through, our brain went, this is how we make sense of it. Except it doesn't make any sense at all. And then we use that to justify to get another hit and another hit and another hit. We literally learn. So our brain goes, for example, fawning is cool because I'm safe. I have to do this. Like it like, but we're, we're in an altered state of reality when we are being perpetrated upon as kids. We're actually in an altered state of reality. Mm -hmm. We have to reverse that. So that's the thing too about dissociation is that when you, of course you have, you know, CPTSD you know, we, the, the, the core of it all is healing, is healing the memory. And what EMDR does is that it goes back to those, the memories and you get a chance to learn from that trauma, not high, mm. not high. So you're, you're, you're going back to these sensory things that happened and you get a chance to learn, but you're not high and dissociating that's why some of you who may research by emdr are us as clinicians we do our best to not have our clients and patients dissociate during emdr because then guess what basically then they're getting high and you don't want that because the point is you want to reverse that right you don't want them you know like staying in that dissociation you try to treat that so that's why we do what we do because we were dissociated because the, the 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 injury the the perpetration the enmeshment it causes us to dissociate we get high we learn distorted things which justifies why we keep doing it and literally we're addicted to that feeling we're addicted to that to activating it through enmeshment because we learned how to socially bond in an enmeshed way so we don't know any other way to be and that's also why it's very because we normalize it in society. We normalize it. And it's like, oh, this is social bonding. This is cool. To the point where. It's so normalized. So absolutely normalized. And that doesn't help either. No. The fact that it's so normalized. And that's also another reason why our narcissism. That we couldn't see it for what it is. Because so much of our narcissism is so normalized. So the, so the, so to be clear, everyone, I'm not saying that the traditional narcissist doesn't exist because they do. I'm not, I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but that, but there's a way for said people to get better. And there's a different way of looking at the darkness within yourself too. So if we omit the darkness within ourselves, because you see, when we've had a perpetrator attack us, we unfortunately learn to be perpetrators against ourselves. That's got to stop. And that's what fawning is. It's about perpetrating against yourself. And you will also end up perpetrating others. There's no way that you won't also transgress and be passive aggressive. There's no way. Like I have never had anybody that I've worked with. If I sit down with them, we start looking at stuff. We're going to find out how you've actually been manipulative to other people and been immoral 
no one's perfect. Again, that's back to perfectionism. So it's more like saying the narcissist is, is the epitome of imperfection and I'm perfect and I'm not the narcissist. That, that's what it's about. Re reputation, perfection, avoiding feelings of shame. So in other words, when you talk about narcissism mm -hmm. and, and people calling people narcissists, they're shaming them. I'm going to oh, yeah. shame that person and call them a narcissist and shame them. And it's like, no, you don't want to face your sit with your shame. So you're not going to project that onto somebody else. That way you don't have to deal with it, which in and of itself is narcissistic. Mm. That's narcissistic. That's manipulative. That in and of itself is manipulative. Because it's demonizing one group of people that basically saying they have less value and worth as a human being compared to me. So that's actually very, that could actually even be seen in the traditionally narcissistic way. Right. So I know there's a lot to talk about, but that, that it's complex. It's complex. There's a lot. I know. It's like, we're getting to the end. We have four minutes left and I'm just like, you keep <laughs> things that I could go so deep on. What do you have any, what about some of the questions that your followers had? They, you answered Did all of answer? them. I was Did saying, I answer all of them? Good. You answered all of them. Um, a lot of them were just like, how do you know if you are one, which you answered, um, yeah. How, how do you break the cycle? That was pretty much the gist of it. Um, yeah. There's a huge, there's a huge reward in this for those of you all, like, like if, if you reframe it in this way, there's actually a huge reward in this. Um, you know, the kind of, the kind of your, you are, it's a lot of personality development. So it, so Another question I guess I could answer, but maybe wasn't asked of me was again, the personality disorder or the addiction, right? And here's the thing. Um, it's not that one does not have an issue with one's personality because there is there are problems, but it has to do with what causes the personality problem. And what causes the personality problem is the addiction. Why? Because then you create your whole personality around getting hits. Then it's all about like, how can I get hits? How can I, that's the motivation. Like, how can I get the next hit? How can I, and hits, I call hits in my work, like basically enmeshment, like you're getting hits. You're, you know, you're basically getting an attachment need for acting in an enmeshed way. It, it's a little negotiation. It's like, you do this, I'll do, that gets the covert contracts. See, that's why I teach, that's I'm why I'm speechless. <laughs> That gets into love bombing, which is very fawning, right? Love bombing is fawning, right? Oh, <laughs> no, don't say that, though. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, it can be, yeah. it can be. Totally. I mean, yeah, I mean, totally. I know with, um, I, I teach in some of my programs, like, how to feel somatically, how fawning feels in your body and for myself, it feels like wanting to giggle and it feels like me wanting to just compliment you. Compliment. I can come up with anything. I've been practicing it for years. I could literally look at someone. I don't like anything on them and create a compliment because I, I'm practiced in it. And, and I feel like that is similar to love bombing. Yeah. And I feel this is so raw what I'm getting ready to tell you. This is going to be nasty because y'all look, I'm raw, right? I'm like, tell me. Fawning is like when an animal poops on the floor, 
oh god to, dist- to distract the perpetrator and then takes off that's what that is it means i'm gonna put something that smells interesting i'm gonna put that there so that i can run and be safe say more that's what that basically means it means i'm gonna put i'm gonna put something that you smell that you totally fixate on it's so that i can run and be safe so while you're okay. busy thinking about how how, how nice I said your outfit looks, you're yes. not going to be attacking me. Right. You're not going to attack me. I'm going to be safe because I'm going to say all these nice things. You're going to focus on that. That way you don't hurt me. Well, I could go on with this conversation for hours. <laughs> um, we're at the end. Thank you so much for your time. Like literally this i wish we had more of this in this space because the traditional um the narcissist is a terrible person and i'm the martyr i although it's validating like you said in some spaces where narcissistic abuse is very real it's it's validating and helpful and also i think ultimately in the big picture it's harmful because we're just creating more division so I very much appreciate your nuance and I think we need more of it and hopefully we're moving that direction. I uh, hope so. I, I certainly hope so because for those that are, you know, concerned with narcissistic abuse, if you look at your own narcissism, you also actually end up protecting yourself better. This is what I said to someone the other day. They said, um, this will be the last thing and then we'll wrap up. But they they said, why do I keep attracting narcissists? And I said, well, you're a fawner. I work with people that are recovering people pleasers. I'm one myself. And when you are fawning, someone who's really healthy and has great boundaries, they're not going to want to engage with someone who's like just giving themselves to you. It's not attractive. Like the more that you, like you said, find yourself, find your personality, the less attractive that is. And so who finds that attractive? The other side of that, which is, you know, someone else who also doesn't have great boundaries. Yeah, that's right. So thank you so much for your time. Is there any last thoughts or any, I'd love you to say just like where people can find you on social media, the test that you mentioned before, and then anything else you'd like to promote? Sure. Um, I think that if you're, you know, if you're interested in, you know, and you're hearing what I'm saying, you're like, oh man, like what kind of, like with my narcissism, what is that like? And I have it labeled as mild, moderate, or severe. So I don't call it narcissistic personality disorder. I very much renamed it just narcissistic disorder, you know, cause it's an addiction. So you just go to my website at narcissismrehabilitation.com, Right. And then the assessment is on the front page and it's only like 10 questions or 11 questions. And, uh, you'll get a sense of whether you're mild, moderate, or severe narcissist. And that'll also, um, even if you don't want to use the term because you're still like, oh, I don't want to use it. That's all right. Because you know what? You can look at it and go, you can actually look at it and go, how bad is my enmeshment? Because it's either mild enmeshment, moderate enmeshment, or severe enmeshment. And then you really get a sense of where you're at with that. Awesome. And do you have any resources for people who would like to uh, commence a detox? Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I don't. Uh, and that's because all of the stuff that, 
I'm actually quite critical of all the information that's uh, online and books. I haven't, unfortunately, I haven't really found anything that really helps people to do that in a way that doesn't enable more narcissistic behavior. Unfortunately, I, I wish, and I mean that, I really wish that I that I did, but I, I'm being honest, I, I haven't really seen that. There's too much enabling of narcissistic behavior within our culture. So the best thing I can recommend um, is to just listen to my podcast. That's going to be the best resource because the podcast is very much structured just like I would teach my courses online through audio. So it, it's the same kind of structure. So it's a way to have you know, the audio, little mini audio courses uh, for free, like through the podcast. And it's just me, you know, it's just me talking about stuff, teaching you concepts that are complicated. And then you can listen to as much as you need to take notes, whatever. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I haven't, I don't have any resource that for that because there's nobody teaching it like me. And then, so it's kind of, I'm kind of the only resource in that regard. Um, but they're like, you know, you'd mentioned that you're detoxing and going through your, your way. Um, the only other thing I can think of is again, like concept of shadow work, ego death. That's about as close, I guess, in resources you can kind of get, but even within that, unfortunately, there's a lot of narcissism, which we talked about within those spaces. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. Okay, perfect. It just sounds like it's time to write a book. That's yes. I have been asked many times to write a book, but not yet. I, I almost did a year ago and it's like, nope, I got to create the center. My vision is to have multiple narcissism, you know, rehabilitation centers throughout the United States and hopefully outside the United States too. That would be great. Yeah. Oh, we need it. Bad. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. That's all for today for the Your Own Medicine podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, these episodes do come out pretty sporadically, so if you'd like to be notified each time a new episode comes out, please subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, and you can always follow my journey along, which I always post when a new episode comes out on my social media, TikTok and Instagram, at Yoga. And feel free to keep in touch. You can also check out my website at kaliklugyoga.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.